Be seated. We invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are in a series of lessons on Sunday evenings in 1 Timothy, one of the evangelistic epistles written by Paul to his son in the gospel, that son in the gospel being Timothy, whom we mentioned earlier was, we believe, converted when, when Paul and Barnabas were on that first missionary journey, and then when Paul and Silas revisited that area on the second journey that Timothy joined Paul and that he was with him for much of his labors from that time on and labored diligently and faithfully as a worker in the kingdom of God. Paul wrote this epistle to him to encourage him in his work in the kingdom. The second epistle, which the Lord willing, we will also study when we finish 1 Timothy was written a few years later than this one at a time when Paul knew that his time was nearing an end. And he wrote to Timothy then, who was not with him at the time, to come to him. He wanted this young man, whom he loved and appreciated so much for his labor in the kingdom and his dedication to the cause of Christ, to be with him in his final hours. We're ready for verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, and it is a section of the epistle that begins with an expression of deep gratitude on the part of the Apostle Paul. Gratitude that he expresses to Christ Jesus, he says, our Lord. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me, that is, strengthened me, because he counted me faithful, trustworthy is the idea here, of course, putting me into the ministry. The gratitude of the Apostle Paul was something that was not lacking, to say the least. It was the deepest possible gratitude, and it was a continual gratitude. Why? Because of the tremendous opportunity that he had been given, considering the life that he had lived in persecuting the very cause that he would later embrace. And oh, how thankful he was that the Lord gave him that opportunity. And so this is an expression of gratitude for having the opportunity not only to become a Christian, obviously, but to be put into the ministry, that is to be able to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul considered that a privilege beyond his ability to express it. And he expressed that gratitude for that privilege time and time again in his writings in the New Testament. And immediately after he expresses this gratitude to the Lord, he contrasts his present state of being in the ministry, that is, being able to preach the gospel of Christ, to what he formerly was. Notice verse 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. I was formerly a what? A blasphemer one who speaks against or rails against something or someone, a cause or an individual. And in this case, in this case, in Paul's former life, when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, 
He was railing against, speaking against the Christ and against Christianity. You well know from reading Acts chapter 9 and other things that are said in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26 that indeed he was a fervent persecutor of Christians. In Acts 22 and Acts 26, he is recounting those days of persecution, recalling them, remembering them. But in Acts 9, we still have the action taking place where Saul is breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord and where he is requesting letters from the synagogues uh, or from the high priest to go to the synagogues of Damascus in order to find any who were of, as the scripture says, the way, that is Christians, whether men or women, to bring them back bound to Jerusalem. That's the kind of zeal, that is the fervor that Paul exhibited as one who believed with all of his heart that not only should he oppose the cause of Christ, but that he should oppose it in the most vigorous possible manner. And so he was a blasphemer who spoke against it. He was a persecutor who attacked it. And the idea of the persecution there is not only do you attack your opponent, you pursue him and go after him until he is completely defeated. Well, that's exactly what we read about in Acts chapter 9 where he was not content to persecute Christians in Jerusalem where he was. He wanted to go as far north as Damascus in order to carry out that persecution. But notice the next word, and it is an interesting word indeed. The New King James translates it insolent. The King James translates it injurious. It is the word from we get from which we get our word hubris. The hubris, that is the extreme arrogance and pride that sometimes characterizes people. And it is the original word is the word from which we get that word, hubris, which means extreme pride or arrogance, but the original word carries with it that kind of attitude, that arrogant attitude, and that attitude that not only goes after someone, that not only persecutes someone, but if you can imagine it, does so with joy and glee, if you will, in the very process. In other words, an attitude. Paul had an attitude. Saul of Tarsus had an attitude. And by attitude, you know what we mean. He had an attitude of malice. He had an attitude of malice, and he was very proud of his persecution against Christianity. That's exactly what the word means. That's the, the very idea that it carries. Now, it's hard for us to think about Paul the Apostle with that kind of attitude. But it reflects, it reflects first of all, the firm conviction that he had that what he was doing, he had a right to do with malice because what he was persecuting was opposed to the God of heaven. And he believed himself to be a follower of the God of heaven to such an extent that he could, in effect, take pride in opposing that which he believed with all of his heart was opposed to God and to Judaism, 
which he embraced and believed was what God wanted him to embrace, and he believed with all of his heart that he was doing the will of God. You remember in Acts 23, 1, he said, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He always did what he did in good conscience. This word, insolent or injurious as it is times translated, tells us he did what he did for God with an attitude, an attitude of malice toward those whom he persecuted because he thought they were trying to oppose the God of heaven and overthrow a system that he believed God endorsed. What else, though, does that tell us? other than something about the zeal and fervor that he had in his persecution, it also tells us something very significant about his conversion. It tells us something very, very very significant about his conversion. You see, someone, someone who was a blasphemer, someone who was a persecutor, someone who was insolent, that is, who did the persecution with an attitude, an attitude of malice and determination to utterly destroy the opposition, for him to become an apostle of the very one he had that attitude toward? What does that say about his conversion? It speaks volumes about the genuineness of his conversion. And writer after writer has cited the conversion of Saul of Tarsus as perhaps the most single, powerful, singularly powerful evidence of the validity of Christianity. Because there is no way that a man who had the attitude that Paul himself says he had in this passage here and elsewhere as he speaks of it, there's no way that some sort of vague hallucination or some sort of dream or anything that is not completely concrete and absolutely convincing is going to change that kind of man's mind. It's going to take something that is truly stupendous, something that is truly earth-shaking, something that is truly undeniable in his mind for him to make the kind of change he made. What was that? Well, we know what it was in Acts 9. It was the Lord's appearance to him on the Damascus road. And when the Lord appeared to him, it was not an hallucination. It was not something that he had any doubt whatsoever about. It completely turned this man around. But what kind of man was he? A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. But he says, I obtained mercy. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You see, Saul of Tarsus, when he persecuted the cause of Christ, and he did it with an attitude, he did not do it thinking that what he was persecuting was right at all. That these Christians are right. I know they're right, but I'm going to go after them anyway. Oh, no, no. Obviously, we've just determined that that was just, just the opposite. He believed they were as wrong as they could be, that they were opposed to God, and so he was ignorant. He did not have that knowledge of the truth at that point in time. He couples his ignorance with the other word what? Unbelief. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. 
I didn't do it believing that, yes, they have something going here and I see some validity in it, but it's a threat to Judaism, so I'm going to destroy it. No, he thought it was a threat to Judaism because it had nothing going for it and because it opposed God's ordained law. And so he says, I was given an opportunity because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Is Paul saying that ignorance is an excuse for disobeying God? No, if he were saying that, then there would have been no need for his being pardoned. There would have been no need for his receiving mercy. If ignorance is an excuse for disobeying God, then Saul of Tarsus didn't need the mercy of God. He did it ignorantly. He did it ignorantly in unbelief. Was he saved in his ignorance and his unbelief? Well, of course not. Otherwise, there'd have been no need for the Lord to appear to him to, to ultimately lead to his salvation and to qualify him to become an apostle. Paul is not saying when he says, I received or obtained mercy, that there was nothing I had to do to respond to that mercy. He's not saying there was no, no part that I had to play when God through Christ, gave me that opportunity. In fact, just the opposite is the case. You remember we've talked about a passage that Paul wrote about this grace that he, that he loved and appreciated so very, very much in 1 Corinthians 15.10 when he said, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. For I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. But he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And yet, as we've talked about before, what did he do to become what he was when he wrote those words? And what was he when he wrote those words? By the grace of God, I am what I am. He was a Christian. He was an apostle. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But how did he become what he was at that time? Acts 9 tells us. Acts 22 gives us more information. Acts 26 gives us more information. What was it that he had to do? The Lord told him when he appeared to him, go into Damascus and it will be told you what you must do. Ananias came to him and said, why are you waiting? And what was he doing? Praying, because the Lord told Ananias, go to him, for behold, he is praying. And when Ananias arrived, he said, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so there was something Paul or Saul at that time had to do in order to receive or accept the grace of God. What was it? The same thing you must do, the same thing I must do if we haven't done it already, and that is we must obey the gospel. The grace is God's part, obedient faith is our part. And that's what Saul had to do. So when he said, I received mercy or I obtained mercy, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant, that's our next verse, verse 14, with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, the grace was exceedingly abundant. Gets us back to 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Think about how often Paul exalted and extolled the grace of God. And yet it was never grace alone that he exalted. It was never grace alone through, or grace through faith alone that he appreciated it was grace that gave him the opportunity to exercise his faith by what a belief that led him to repent of his sins confess Jesus as the Christ and be buried in baptism for the remission of his sins as we read that he did thus 
calling on the name of the Lord. Acts twenty-two sixteen. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, Saul, calling on the name of the Lord in that process. And so Saul knew he had a part to play. But he knew that even after he had done that, and when he had met the conditions that Ananias sent by the Lord Jesus Christ himself had set forth for him to obey, he knew then when he came up out of the waters of baptism, cleansed therein by the blood of Christ, he knew then that it was still what? The grace of God that made it all possible. And that without that grace, he would have never been given the opportunity to turn from his sins in obedience to the truth. Should we appreciate that grace any less? No, we shouldn't. But Paul had a special appreciation because of his former position of persecution. Persecution with an attitude. But notice the latter part of verse 14. He says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. And then he adds, With faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about with faith that that Christ had. He's talking about faith that he had in Christ. But what he's saying is that the grace of God was exceedingly abundant and that it produced within him, because of that grace that was extended to him, a deepening and growing faith and an intensifying and increasing love. Faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 15. This is a faithful saying. In other words, this is just simply an expression that says, this is, this is something you can take to the bank, so to speak. This is something that is absolutely trustworthy. It cannot be controverted. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, before we talk about Paul expressing and describing himself as the chief of sinners, think about the statement prior to that, that Jesus Christ, he says, this is a faithful saying, it's worthy of all acceptance. You can't deny this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Remember Luke 19.10 records the words of Jesus himself when he said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But I want you to think about this statement in regard to a very popular doctrine in the religious world today, and that's the doctrine of Calvinism. And we've talked about Calvinism in an entire series of lessons for that matter. But think about that in relation to what the Calvinistic doctrine says. The Calvinistic doctrine, if you think about it, really denies this statement from Paul in verse 15. A statement that he says is faithful and worthy of all acceptance. But Calvinism denies that statement. This statement that's worthy of all acceptance does not say that Christ Jesus came into the world to save some sinners. The word some is not there. The idea of some is not there. What is there in terms of the implication? What is the word that is there that is implied? Not some, but all. That's what is being said. The faithful saying that's worthy of acceptance is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save all sinners. That was his mission. 
What then does that say about the Calvinistic doctrine that says predestination is a reality and election, the doctrine of election, and that uh, unless you have been predetermined and elected to salvation, then you're lost. You have to just simply wait to see whether you're among the group that has been chosen to be saved. That's in total that's in total contrast with what this statement tells us that is what? A faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save all sinners. That's the clear implication. Calvinism denies that. Calvinism says, no, he came into this world to save the elect. And then you just simply have to wait to see if you're among them. And you really can't make the choice to come to Jesus. He has to make the choice to come to you. That, in effect, is what it teaches. But here's simply a statement that makes it abundantly clear that that cannot be the case if, indeed, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And it is a faithful statement. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, what about this expression of Paul when he says, of whom I am chief? Think about that attitude, and the idea here of chief is the idea of foremost. It's, either, it's a word that means either first in rank or first in time. Well, he, he obviously doesn't mean first in time. He was not the first sinner, but he was first in rank. Foremost is the idea. That's how he viewed his former life. But what a contrast in the attitude now as he views himself as the chief of sinners and the attitude back up in verse 13 in that word insolent, the pride and the arrogance that went after Christians. And yet now he understands and fully appreciates that Christ came to save sinners, and I am foremost among them. He never forgot, Paul did not, what he had done to persecute the church. He never forgot that he consented to the death of individuals who were brought before rulers and killed. He consented. He held the clothes of those, the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And you can only imagine, based on his own use of the word insolent, what kind of attitude he had at that event. He was not sorry for Stephen, I wouldn't say. He was, based upon his own admission here. But he's deeply sorry now. But does that deep sorrow in any way has it in any way during his entire ministry, and he's closing in on the end of it now when this epistle was written, has that realization of just how much he did against the cause of Christ, did that in any way hinder his labors in the Lord? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, just the opposite effect was seen. Because of his former situation, he was more determined than ever to be a fervent, diligent, dedicated 
worker in the kingdom and to do all that he could to erase or offset the harm that he had done to the cause of Christ. But he was not, and here's the point, so guilt-ridden that he was burdened by his former life to the point that he basically said, God can't forgive me. God can't forgive me. Do you think there are any people in the world who have done so much or have done something, whether it's so much quantitatively or they've done something so heinous, so sinful, that they've reached a point that they feel, God just, I just don't believe God could forgive me. I don't believe he could. Or have there been those who've actually obeyed the gospel, who've come out of terrible backgrounds, and yet, even after obeying the gospel, they have lived with the guilt and had so much difficulty in ridding themselves of that guilt. There's a difference between being aware of your past life and being guilt-ridden about your past life if indeed the blood of Christ has cleansed your past life. And that's something we need to fully appreciate from these words, especially the ones that are coming next. Verse 16. However, he says, after saying, I am chief, he says, however, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, here I am. I am the perfect example. I am a pattern. And here's, here's what I'm the pattern for. And that is, for, I'm a pattern for those who think they've just done too much or whatever they have done has been so sinful that they cannot be forgiven. His point obviously is, if I could be forgiven, so can you. And who is you? Anyone. The you is anyone. Anyone. Without reservation. Anyone who what? Who will do what Saul of Tarsus was willing to do when he was confronted with his sin. Turn from it. Repent of it. Confess Jesus to be the Christ. Express your faith. Be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And rise to walk in what? Newness of life. And don't let that past life, don't let that past life hinder your present existence or hinder your service in the kingdom. In fact, let it do just what it did for Paul. Let it motivate you even more. Now let me ask you this. Does it really make any difference how much sin or what sin one has committed before he becomes a Christian as to how grateful he should be for the forgiveness of that sin once he comes out of it? In other words, one who hasn't committed some sin of the flesh, but who has lied, uh, who is a constant liar, one who is a fornicator, uh, what, is, what is the difference in terms of the gratitude we should feel if we understand sin as we should 
What is the difference in the attitude and the gratitude we should feel for any of us who've been blessed to hear and obey the gospel and to be forgiven of sin? Should not our gratitude be the greatest possible gratitude because sin, which separates us, no matter what that sin is, from God, no longer separates us? Now, I do know and I understand that on one occasion, Jesus, as he lived among men, talked to a man named Simon about a woman who came in, and you remember? And when she came in, and Simon, who was the Jew there in whose house the Lord was visiting, Simon was critical of why this woman was getting the attention of the Lord. Why was the Lord giving her even the time of day? That's in Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house, sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Remember, I preached a sermon here. Sometime back on Simon Says. Lessons we could learn from Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said what? Teacher, say it. And then he talked about the creditor who had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, To him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. But that's the point. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. In whose eyes is one forgiven little? It's in the eyes of the one who's the sinner. And sometimes sinners don't see sin as they should. And therefore, they don't appreciate forgiveness when it's offered. This woman did. Simon the Pharisee did not. But notice something else about verse 47 of Luke 7. For she loved much. She loved much. What did she do? All the things Jesus said she did. Kissing his feet, washing his feet, anointing his feet. Etc. Love what? Acts. Love does something. 
she loved much because she did much, but she appreciated the forgiveness of sins. Paul the Apostle, formerly Saul of Tarsus, appreciated that forgiveness. And he tells us, don't ever think, don't ever think you ever reach a point where you cannot be forgiven if indeed you will comply with the conditions of the gospel. And in verse 17, the last verse at which we'll look tonight, he just simply breaks forth in a doxology as these praises are often called. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The thought of everything that Paul had been writing suddenly, suddenly forced him emotionally to say, through the Holy Spirit, of course, to the King eternal, who has no beginning and no end, to the one who is immortal, who is invincible, who cannot die, cannot get sick, invisible, whom no man has seen at any time, only only temporary manifestations of his glory, but not God himself. No man has seen God at any time. To the invisible God, to the one who alone is wise, the alone who alone is the wise and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And what prompted that expression and outpouring of sudden praise was the contemplation of the forgiveness that this man who was a persecutor and a blasphemer and an insolent man had been given to turn away from all that and turn to Christ. Should we be any less grateful, though, really, in being given the opportunity to turn away from sin and to come into Christ through obedience to the gospel? If you haven't done that, we hope you'll do it this very night, believing with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried in baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. How much clearer could it be, Mark sixteen sixteen? If you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.